Hey, thank you for listening to the podcast of Palmetto Baptist Church. We pray that as you listen to the following message today, that it will encourage you to continue to connect, grow, and serve in your relationship with God and with others. You have your Bibles with you, turn in them to the Gospel of Mark chapter 1. The Gospel of Mark chapter 1. This is the season of Advent. Advent is a word that means arrival or appearing. During Advent, which consists of the Sundays between Thanksgiving and Christmas, we celebrate Jesus' first arrival, we anticipate his second arrival, and we contemplate what that means, those two arrivals mean for each of our lives. So Advent is a very important time of taking stock of what the arrival of Jesus means for each of us. Today's text comprises the first eight verses of the Gospel of Mark. It's a set of verses that describe the ministry of John the Baptizer. Mark chapter 1. The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. The Gospel of Mark was the first of the four Gospels written Sometime in the middle 60s of the first century, uh, Mark wrote. And if you read his gospel very closely, it appears that he's writing in a hurry. It's urgent that he gets the message out. We believe that much of what he wrote he got from Simon Peter while he was with Peter in prison. And Peter knew, and I'm sure Mark knew, that Peter was about to be executed. And his execution could come at any time, any day. It was imminent. And so Mark was in a hurry to get the information from Peter, and he was in a hurry to write it down. And so (laughs) Mark's grammar was not something he was concerned with. Uh, Whether he had a verb in every sentence was not something Mark was concerned with. He was concerned about getting the message down quickly. So quickly indeed that if you notice the first sentence has no main verb in it. The gospel, the beginning of the gospel, the beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. Sounds like a title. Some people say, well, that's a title. Titles don't have verbs. But uh, in the earliest copies of the manuscript, that sentence is not separated out like we would if we were assigning this statement as a title. It's part of the text. Mark's in a hurry. And so, 
He opens his gospel, unlike Matthew and Luke, who opened their gospels talking about the nativity, the birth scene of Jesus in Bethlehem. And unlike John, who begins way back in eternity in the past, when he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, Mark instead starts with the ministry of John the Baptist, John the Baptizer. After opening up with this fragmented sentence, the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, he from that point plunges into the Jordan River with John the Baptist, quoting two prophetic text. He cites Isaiah, but if you look at the verses that, uh, the verse that follows his citation of Isaiah, you'll note that the first uh, verse is from not Isaiah, but Malachi. The second one is from Isaiah, and then immediately John the Baptist appears. Mark is in such a hurry that he doesn't even take the time to write out past tense verbs in past tense verb. He writes them as present tense verbs. And so he says in the, in the actual text, in the original text, John the Baptist appears in the wilderness and he is preaching a baptism of repentance and the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem go out to him confessing their sins. They're baptized by him. John the Baptist. It's an interesting way to start a gospel, jumping right into the Jordan River with John the Baptist. There's a little town in Massachusetts called Marblehead, Massachusetts. 2010 census says that Marblehead has 20, just shy of 20,000 population. And somewhere in Marblehead, Massachusetts, there is a place where five streets intersect, a five-point intersection. And at that intersection, there is a house. You see the house on the screen. This house is called the Lafayette House. It was built sometime around the year 1731. So it is a historic monument in Marblehead, Massachusetts. If you look really closely, you'll notice that the corner of the first floor of the Lafayette House has been cut off. And it's just the first floor, it's not the second floor. And there are a lot of stories, different stories that have been offered to explain why the corner of the first level was cut off of that house. Uh, some people say that uh, there were coal wagons that came through that intersection and those coal wagons were so wide that they couldn't get past this corner and so they, they cut the corner off of the front level in order to make room for those coal wagons. Other people say, no, uh, but the water, water and sewage passed down that way, flowed that way, and the corner of the house obstructed the free flowing of the water and the sewage, and so they cut the corner off of the first level to allow a free flow of the water and sewage. That's a wonderful explanation. Another explanation is that the corner was cut off in order to make an entrance for a little mercantile store on the front level of the house. But by far the most interesting explanation for that corner being cut off has it that in 1824, the very famous French general, General Marquis de Lafayette, 
was doing a victory tour coming through Massachusetts, and his tour took him through Marblehead, Massachusetts, but he had this wide, majestic chariot that was being pulled by six large white horses. And the chariot, along with its horses, were so wide that when they came through this area, they couldn't get through. And so some men jumped off the chariot, and some people in the area joined them, and they proceeded to dismantle the corner of the front level of that house so General Lafayette's chariot could come through. Now, I'll confess to you, I don't know which of those explanations is the true one. But one thing is for sure. At some point in the distant American history, somebody in Marblehead, Massachusetts, heard that something important was coming through. A pathway needed to be cleared. And therefore, the corner of that house on the front level was cut off for whatever that was that was important to come traveling through. Clearing out a way for something that is, was important. Which brings me to John the Baptizer. John the Baptizer, I've called him the bulldozer. Because he, his primary role in, in the good news of Jesus was to come along before Jesus uh, appeared and to prepare the way, to bulldoze the way for Jesus to come through. Something important was coming. A way had to be cleared. And John the baptizer was the one person of all the people on the planet chosen by God to be the forerunner, the bulldozer, clearing out the way for Jesus. I began to think about what does it mean that John was to clear out the way for Jesus? What, what did that mean? I mean, obviously, if you study John the baptizer any length at all, you know that he was preparing people's hearts. His message was a message of repentance, which means to turn around, change your direction, and then be baptized as a sign that you are changing your direction in preparation for the coming of the Lord. That certainly is part of it. But there's so much more that is embedded in this idea of John clearing the way for Jesus. For instance, I believe that for one thing, it means that, that something major was about to happen. Something major. Now, I would imagine that uh, if, we, if we were to get the news today that tomorrow at noon, the President of the, of the United States and his motorcade would be traveling in Georgia from Atlanta down to Columbus, and that they were going to be traveling through Palmetto, Georgia on Highway 29. I would guess that in anticipation of that presidential visit, law enforcement would line both sides of the streets I would imagine that security officials would don the roofs of many of the buildings on both sides of Main Street and Palmetto. We'd be preparing a way. Uh, roads would be blocked. You wouldn't be able to walk out on the street during the time that the motorcade would come through. You wouldn't be able to drive any vehicle on the street. Bicyclists would have to take an alternate, alternate uh, route in order to allow for the president to come in. Because... It'd be something major. It would be a major event. The president does not usually come through Palmetto, Georgia. It's very rare. 
I don't even know if it has ever happened. But as major an event as a president coming through the small town of Palmetto would be, that fades into insignificance in contrast to the something major that John the baptizer was clearing out for. Because John the baptizer, of all the billions of people who would, would live on earth, there are over seven billion of us alive right here and right now, not to mention the billions uh, untold numbers who have lived and gone. But of all those people, God chose John the baptizer for the purpose of being the bulldozer clearing out for a major event. And that major event was a one time in all of history event in which God intervened in history. In which God became man And in becoming man, he was 100% man and 100% God. And he came, was born, lived perfectly, and died on a cross for us. That That was the major event in all of history. Clearing the way for Jesus meant something major was about to happen. It also meant that God uses the unlikely. Have you ever tried to picture John the Baptist in your mind? Uh, I know this is not a, a pretty picture of him, but when I think about John the Baptist, in my mind, I think about Charles Manson. You ever seen a picture of Charles Manson? I'm not saying that John the Baptist acted like Charles Manson, not at all, but I can envision that he looked like him. I mean, straggly beard all knotted up, his hair all over the place in knots. Nobody had combed it in probably, I don't know, 20 years I mean, he's, he's wearing a, a camel outfit, and I'm not talking about Neiman Marcus or Hartshafter Mark's camel outfit. I'm talking about very, very primitive, some sort of belt holding that bad boy together. And he's drinking honey, which is okay, but he's eating locusts, locusts. Now, some folks try to water that down and say, well, what it really means was locust seeds from a locust tree. Yeah. I'm going to tell you what I believe. I believe old John the Baptist had grasshopper breath. That's what I think. I believe he was eating locusts and drinking honey, and he looked terrible. He looked terrible. Listen, this was a man who spent a lot of time alone, was prone to depression. He's not the kind of guy you want to be the once-in-history forerunner of the Messiah. He's not the pick, and yet God picks him. But then when I look at the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, and I study all of the unlikely characters God chooses to do his will, and then when I look at you and me, and I think about all the unlikely characters God chooses to do his will even today, and I realize that unlikely people are the modus operandi of God. He doesn't pick the people that you, would, you and I would expect him to pick. I mean, think about the, the 12 disciples Jesus picked. Especially consider the fact that when he picked them, when he chose them, he knew what they would do. He knew what Judas would do. He knew that Peter would deny him three times. He knew that James and John would fight with each other with a personality that's like thunder and lightning. He knew that on the night of his crucifixion, all of them except for John would abandon him. And yet those 12 he chose. Think about the Apostle Paul. 
Jesus appeared to Paul in a post-resurrection appearance and he chooses Paul. Now, Paul was the Osama bin Laden of the first century. He, he looked up people to kill. And, and the main qualification for killing someone was that they be Christian. He's the most unlikely person to, want to, to be a leader for the Christian faith of anybody alive at his time. And yet God chose him. So you got John the Baptist. You've got the 12 disciples. You've got... Uh, the Apostle Paul, unlikely people. And then he chooses you. And he chooses me. You see, God thrives on choosing the unlikely. Clearing the way for Jesus meant something major was about to happen. It meant... Uh, God uses the unlikely, it also meant that everything was about to change. When Jesus arrived, little did Mary and Joseph and the shepherds and the wise men and Herod and all of those people, little did they know that everything was about to change. Simeon may have known a little bit about it. God had shown him. Anna, the prophetess at, at the temple in Jerusalem, may have known something about it, but even they only saw bits and pieces of the future. But here Jesus was, and his arrival meant that God had once and for all finally come. The sacrificial system of slaying all of those lambs and goats and birds was over. Because Jesus, according to John the Baptist, was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so when Jesus came and died on the cross, he ended all of that sacrificial religion that came before him. Everything's about to change. When Jesus came in your life, if you're a Christian, if there was a time in your life when you invited Christ into your heart, then that moment, that period of time in which he came into your heart was a life changer for you. Everything's about to change. And that's what John clearing out the way for Jesus meant. But let me carry it just a little bit further, if I may. And that is, you and I are a lot like John the baptizer. Now, uh, hopefully none of us look like old John. And I, I'm really praying and hoping that when you leave and go to lunch somewhere, you're not going to eat grasshoppers. I'm really hoping that, although some of you are going to eat fried shrimp and they are the grasshopper roach of the sea. <laughs> but you and I are a lot like John. Because just as he was the forerunner of the first arrival of Jesus, you and I are given the responsibility of clearing out the way for Jesus to appear among our families, our neighbors, our communities, and our church. So just as surely as what did it mean for John to clear out the way for Jesus, what does it mean for us to clear out the way for Jesus? And let me just suggest to you three things very quickly. First, clearing out the way for Jesus for us means loving people the way Jesus loved people. Now don't check out on me here. I know some people are going to think, well, of course we need to love people the way Jesus loved people. I don't have to hear the rest of that because I know, I know that's true. Yeah, I know that's true. But let me tell you something. Christians today are not acting like we love Jesus the way people, the way Jesus loved people. 
Jesus loved everybody. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. A guy comes up to Jesus one day and says, Lord, what's the, what's the greatest commandment? We look at that, we look at that question, we think, which one of the ten is the greatest command? Really, there were over there were almost seven hundred commands in the law of Moses. And, and the question was, of all those almost seven hundred commands, which one is the greatest? And Jesus said, I'll tell you what, I'll give you two. Not only will I give you two, but all of the other laws hang on these two. And here they are. Number one, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength, and love your neighbor. As yourself. On another occasion, Jesus is talking with his disciples, and he said this. He says, now, guys, let me tell you how everybody else is going to be able to identify you as, as followers of me. Here it is. If the way you love each other, the way you love people, that will identify you as my followers. You want to clear the way for Jesus? Then, then let us be people who love people the way Jesus does. And I'm not talking about just loving the people who look like you do or just look, loving the people who agree with you on everything or just loving the people who believe the way you do or just loving the people who vote the way you do. I'm talking about Jesus loved everybody. Second, clearing the way for Jesus in our world means standing on the side of truth and justice even when the truth and justice are unpopular. I guess you've noticed it's hard to tell the difference between truth and falsehood these days. Some people are, are calling the truth a lie and others are calling lies the truth. And they, they've been doing it so much back and forth that it's hard sometimes to distinguish between what is really the truth and what is not. But let me tell you something. Believe it or not, truth and justice still matter in this world. Telling the truth, speaking truth to power, standing up on behalf of the victimized, righting the wrongs of a people, of a nation, of a world is still important to Jesus. And if it was ever important to Jesus and is still important to Jesus, then truth and justice must be important to the people who claim to follow Jesus. Let me urge you to do something, I'm, and I'm doing it myself, although I, I have to tell you, I, I have a hard time with my stubborn self, but here's what I want to impress upon you to do. Do you love everybody that Jesus loves? Do you believe in truth, not the truth that your favorite news channel happens to convey, not the truth that people in your tribe say. I'm talking about the truth. Do you believe the truth? Do you believe in justice? Do you believe in treating people right? Finally, clearing out the way for Jesus means lovingly and creatively inviting people to know Jesus. Lovingly, not arrogantly, 
Not with an attitude of, I'm okay and you're not okay, but I can help you to be okay. I mean, that's, that, that's about as appealing and enticing as poison oak. Real evangelism, real soul winning is, I know I'm not okay, and I think probably you're like me, not okay, but Jesus will help us both to be okay, so let's journey together. Lovingly. But also creatively. Don't always do it the same old way. If the same old way doesn't work anymore, start a, start a different way of reaching people. Be creative about it. God could have used the high priest to be the forerunner of Christ. He could have used the chief priest, Annas or Caiaphas, to be the forerunner of Christ. He could have used a Billy Graham prototype of the first century to be the forerunner of Christ. But instead, he picks out this guy who looks terrible, smells terrible, eats terrible, spends a lot of time alone, is prone to depression, and that's the one God chose. You know why? Because you and I are... are we pay special attention to unusual looking and acting people. It's true. Did y'all see Santa Claus coming here this morning? You know, why, you know why many of us noticed him? Ain't nobody else in here looks like him. That's right. Now, some of you are thinking, boy, that preacher really noticed me this morning. You're thinking, what? I must be unusual looking. What is that? If John the baptizer were to walk in those double doors and, and, and meticulously, methodically, intentionally walk down the side with his long knotted up hair and smelly and you know, what, you know what many of us to do? Those, those of us who are here carrying, you'd start putting your hand on your weapon, stuff like that. Because he's unusual looking. Our, our eyes would be drawn to him immediately because he's unusual looking. He, he doesn't look like the rest of everybody. And God's thinking, I'm assuming, who better? To be the forerunner, I want someone who attracts attention. John wasn't in it to attract attention for himself, and yet he did attract attention. And because he attracted attention, people from all over Judea came to the Jordan River, convened there to either be baptized by him or to hear him. That's, that, that is ingenious on the part of God. He was creative and innovative. Listen, Think of some creative and loving ways to reach your family, people around you for Christ. We believe that he's the way to salvation. We believe that you have to have a relationship with him in order to go to heaven when you die. And if that's what we truly believe, then we of all people ought to be innovative in how we reach people for Christ. And yet, you know what the truth is? Christian churches are the last ones to embrace change. We're the last ones to embrace creativity. We're the last ones to embrace, in, embrace in, innovation. You know why? Because doesn't the Bible say we ain't never done it that way before? It's in the Bible somewhere. Somebody says, I know the Bible says you ain't never done it that way before. I got that out of the Bible. Yeah, you did way out of the Bible. If we really believe that Jesus is who he says he is, and if we really believe he's the son of God, if we really believe he's the way to salvation, then we 
ought to come up with every creative way, every innovative way that respects God to reach this world for Jesus. John the baptizer was a bulldozer preparing the way, and you and I are bulldozers preparing the way. I was traveling down uh, Johnson Road on my way to Parrot Funeral Home here a few days ago, and I went by Lynn and Faye Roberts' place. Any of you been by there lately? Do y'all know where, he, where they live? Any, any of you been by there? Huh? Y'all don't go much anywhere, do you? There's nothing there. That house is gone, and the trees are gone. It was graded over. I'm telling you, it's just a big, wide expanse of nothing but graded off everything. And I wasn't sure. I knew that Faye had sold uh, the place, uh, but I didn't know what was going there. I hear that it's going to be warehouses, but, but when I first saw the graded off spot, I didn't know what it was going to be. But here's what I did think. Wow, something big is coming here. They have graded off this whole place, torn down their, the, the Roberts home. Something big is coming here. And that's what John was doing. He was a bulldozer grading off a way for something big. You and I are bulldozers. We are grading the way, preparing the way, innovatively entering into people's lives because something big is coming. And that something big is Jesus. You are the John the baptizer of our day. I pray that you and I are as faithful as he was. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you, Lord, that you chose that raggedy-looking fellow named John to be your forerunner. He's not who we would have chosen, but we're glad you chose him because if you chose him, you'd choose us because we're just as unlikely, if not more so than he is, to be chosen to do anything. And thank you for the privilege of being a part of what you're doing. Lord, we're entering this invitation time which often is, oftentimes is, is the most important part of a service. It's the time when some people came, come forward to receive Christ and be saved. It's the time when others come forward to officially join the church. It's a time when problems are worked out and prayers are, are forced through. And it's a time for people to come forward and worship, celebrate. And I pray that it will be that kind of time here and now. In Jesus' name, amen.